welcome to the Build Business Acumen Podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Schooler. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Today, I'm interviewing Max Yoda, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Lessonly, the powerfully simple training software that helps teams learn, practice, and do better work. And he's actually grown that now. He's got 2 million users, so he shares some great insights here. Well, it's really nice to see you, Max. Obviously, you're on video. For, for, uh, for me, the people, people listening at home are quite excited, I think, to hear about Lessonly as well. It's- I appreciate being here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's quite amazing. I mean, you've, you've, so you've built an e-learning business. We call it training software. Yeah, training software for sales teams and customer service teams. This is actually being used by lots of like FTSE top 100s and stuff. You bet. Yeah, we are 600 customers. We just surpassed 2 million uh, uh, unique learners. Uh, you know, it's really fun milestones. Uh, and, and we've been doing this for six and a half years. So to say 600 customers and 2 million learners, I mean, when I, we first got this started, I was thinking, if we can get, you know, 50 customers, I'm going to be out of my mind excited because I never had a customer in my life. I never closed a deal when this business started. So wow. 50 was like, that's going to be enormous. Uh, it, it's been it's been great. Wow, that's that's really quite exciting. So yeah, I mean, so when you when you started, it was a it was a big struggle, right? Like, I mean, Elon Elon Musk he talks about startups, and he says that starting a starting a business is actually a bit like eating glass and then looking down the abyss is what is what he said, and I, that just sticks in my mind, you know, because it, yeah, you know, I speak to loads of people that are in startups, and and you've moved well beyond that, but that pain kind of, it shapes you, doesn't it? From the early days, right? Yeah. I I would often, I would argue that I started a business because of pain. Uh, You know, I had a pain I wanted to fill and it turns out businesses don't fill pains. You got to go to therapy and counseling for that. Um, But they can teach you a lot about yourself. Uh, So I learned a ton about myself. This was my second business lesson. My first business was a polling and like surveying tool. Uh, I ran that one for two years and it didn't go great. I, I, I still had enough money uh, in savings when we shut it down to get uh, to spin Lessonly up. Uh, and I had some par- partners with me in Lessonly as well that really helped, you know, having other people around instead of kind of feeling like you're going it alone. Um, but with Quipple not doing well, which was the first company, I really felt a lot of pressure to make sure Lessonly goes well. Because one thing not working out, you know, that's an anecdote. Uh, two things not working out. Now it's like, you're just not good at this. Uh, so, uh, I was really invested in doing everything I could, uh, to make less than work. Fortunately, we had a business that had a lot more direct and inherent value to customers, which of course is very important. Uh, and we just hit the market at the right time. You know, I think if you tried to start less than today, exact same playbook, you're going to struggle because, uh, markets come in waves and, uh, they don't wait for people. So timing was right. We, the idea was right. Uh, we had enough patience to grow slowly, but surely, but holy moly, was I stressed out. Uh, and I think I missed a lot of the journey by being stressed out. And I think I'm only now, you know, five, five, six years in, um, only five or six years in did I realize how much I needed to work on myself if I was going to be good on this company. Not just focus on the business, but, but focus on just being a better version of myself. Wow. Wow. I think it's, it's so amazing how self-development has kind of come in, come into play and everything else. But like you were saying earlier that when you started Lessonly, right, there were there were 400 
competitors in the marketplace, right? right. If you'd have listened to people, you would have done nothing and you wouldn't have even started the business. Right. It's naivety, you know, that we even got started when you when you think, you know, 400 other people out there are already starting it. But I'd argue to anybody, if you're interested in pursuing something, uh, you have no idea how passionate those 400 competitors are. You know, we didn't know how passionate they were. We didn't know how ambitious they were. They literally just existed as websites on the internet. Uh, and it turns out some of them didn't have a lot of big growth goals. It turns out some of them were very comfortable focusing on very, very small uh, segments of very, very, very specific industries. We don't even see them. You know, like we're not competing against each, for each customer we bring on, we compete against maybe two or three people if we compete at all. And there's 400 learning management systems out there. So I would just encourage anybody, if you're starting a business, do not listen to the person who goes, well, don't people already do that? And if you're telling that to yourself, uh, it might be a good reason not to do it, but it also very well might not be a good reason to do it. And don't let that be the one thing uninvestigated that stops you from getting to work. Yeah, that makes that makes makes a lot of sense, actually. So when you when you sort of started, right, did you did you just kind of look at what else was out there on the market and say, well, okay, so now I know that what we're doing needs to look like this. And then you, and then you went and sort of just started it or what? How did you, you know, Great question. Going? Great question. So in, in the training software space, there is not a lot of love for training software. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, in 2012 when we got started looking at what everybody else was doing because we were doing customer interviews and finding out that nobody was happy with what they were doing. So we just started asking, you know, what do you need? Uh, and what we learned was people needed to be able to create training content quickly uh, and they needed to be able to keep it up to date. A lot of times training programs fall on their face because people go in to build the training programs and the content within them and they take six months to get the first uh, lessons live. That's a long time. That's a long time. Think about the needs of an individual on the sales team or customer service team and then think about them waiting six months to get any forward motion on their training. It's just not fair. Nobody's, nobody's happy. So we learned that first and foremost. We're like, okay, let's think about a lesson builder that's really simple. We looked at things like you know, Squarespace. We looked at analogies. How do you build a e website easily? Oh, well, let's, let's bring that as an analogy into how do you make training software easily. Oh, we looked at WordPress. We looked at all these, it was analogy based because there was nobody in our space who was a good analogy that was a positive analogy. It was all negative analogies. Like, we don't like that thing. Don't do it like them. Let's find a positive analogy. We like that thing. Let's do it like them. And it could, doesn't have to be from the training software space. So we just started saying, let's make it simple. Let's make it affordable. Over time, uh, let's keep it simple and powerful. Uh, and, you know, it's going to get a little more expensive every year because we keep making it better every year. But still, it's a bargain when you think about keeping 100 people on the same page, making sure that they know the latest and greatest playbook and the products, the services that you sell, how to support them, how to price them, how to manage customer objections and give good feedback to people. All those things, it's pretty darn cheap. Uh, to buy training software if you can get that value delivered. Uh, would you rather have 100 people not know what to do or know what to do? With training software, they know what to do. So we didn't look for analogies in our space, we looked for analogies in other spaces. Right, right. So you're big on like sharing before you're ready, aren't you? You were just I am. saying that about me. So what do, you, what do you mean by that, Max? Yeah, so sharing before you're ready was basically, uh, is basically the premise of how do we get what's getting done to overlap with what's needed? At any given time you're working on something, you want what's getting done, the circle of what's getting done to overlap with what's needed. You want them to be one and the same. What's getting yeah. done is what's needed. When that happens, beautiful things go down. When what's getting done is not what's needed, you tend to spend a lot of effort on something that has very minimal value to the people that it was intended for. Pretty basic stuff, right? 
uh, but I don't think we think about it a lot. I don't think we understand sometimes why what we deliver to our teammates is gold and why other stuff is a dud. It has everything to do with if the circle of what's getting done overlaps with the circle of what's needed, beautiful stuff happens. The way we get that to happen is we communicate more. Uh, sharing before you're ready is about not going in a vacuum and working on a project or initiative and then three months later going, ta-da, or even three weeks later going, ta-da. That's a long time to spend in a single vantage point. You know, we are, we are all one, we're just each one vantage point. Other people see things we don't see. And if we can spend an hour on a first draft or something, even if it's basic as heck, it's bullet points, get it in front of the people who ultimately should benefit from it and say, what do you think? What am I missing? This is a quick sketch. This is my napkin sketch. Tear it apart. Show me what I'm missing. They probably won't tear it apart. What they'll probably do is go, oh, hey, I really like these two bullets. I think that's really important. I don't see this third bullet that I expected to see. Now you've got better clarity about what people need. And then you go to one other person, you go to two other people, and you're collecting these voices. I think a lot of times people don't share before they're ready for a few reasons. They want to look really smart. I want to look smart. You want to look smart. We all want to look smart. We, want, we don't want to act like we need other people's help to do a good job. But the reality is we do better work when we do it together. Uh, second part, uh, we, want, we, we really want to uh, make sure that we don't have to do anything we don't want to do on a project. So we don't go ask people their opinions because we're worried somebody's going to give us their opinion. And then we're like, crap, now we have to do that. I like to tell people a voice is not a vote. Go collect voices. But if it's your project and you're responsible for it, you get to make a final vote. Don't be stubborn with that vote. If you heard five people say the same thing and you just, and you just don't like it, you know, maybe look in the mirror and be like, why don't I like it? Maybe I should listen a little more. But if you heard one person say something, they judge it off their gut. You even asked them, you're like, what do you base that on? They're like, I don't know. It just feels right. You can make the vote of whether you go with it or not. And you can come back to them and say, hey, I really appreciate your feedback. Here's the reason I didn't go that route you suggested. And everything can be fine. But I think a lot of times we don't seek feedback because we don't want to say no to people. If we go out with the idea of a voice is not a vote, we can go out, collect voices, and we can ultimately use them to make a better decision. But we're not kind of vote takers in a democracy. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to get projects done. So go mm -hmm. out and seek feedback. Share before you're ready. You'll come up with better projects. The circle of what's getting done will overlap with the circle of what's needed. And gold will be the result. Fantastic. I learned something amazing. That's really great. Hey, thank you. It's really, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I like to think like it's, it can help anybody. All these things, all these things are, are, are things that anybody in the team can do. It's the circles coming together. That's, that's, what, that's what really stuck in my mind. Before you, before you gesticulated and, and did that on screen. Yeah, I wish, I, I wish people could see it. You saw me, because I, I have this funny habit. Yeah, I sort of look, when I'm thinking really deeply, I like look up in the like, <laughs> weird, I mean, it's funny, weird look, yeah? And, and like, that's me thinking really deeply, yeah? So, so I got the you, whites of your eyes. Yeah, yeah, so when you saw that, then you carried on and you said it again because you could see that I was thinking, you see. And yeah. on the third time when you repeated it, it's like you've got to basically do stuff, right, that needs to be done. Yeah. Right. Right. That's and, it. You know, instead of wasting your time on stuff. And, and, and unfortunately, with these, a lot of these big companies, they waste so much time on stuff. They waste so you much know, time. To be doing. But we all do. We all do that. We all do. Yeah. Small companies, large companies alike. And it has, it's yeah. just for the same reasons. Yeah. Uh, and we're just not making progress. When we, when, we, when we do stuff that doesn't, isn't needed, we're not making progress. We're yeah. wasting our own energy and wasting other people's time. Let's make yeah. more progress. Yeah. So with, with this learning management solution you've got, right, you basically yeah. looked at all the, the software. You looked at WordPress. You looked at everything. And you made a standalone so solution, right? Yeah, yeah, we were. We looked at them for inspiration. 
Uh, yeah. We didn't look at them to use their, their, their code or their software. We looked at them to be inspired. We made a standalone solution. What you can do with that solution is you can build your training content. You can deliver it to your team so you can assign it. You can push it to them so that they get a note that says, hey, this is important for you to do. Um, you can create elective learning. So if they don't want to do it, uh, if they don't have to do a certain training, but they want to do a certain training, they can. But the really cool thing about Lessonly that uh, I think is one of the reasons that training software is having this renaissance is practice. It's not just us doing practice. Other people in our space are doing practice, but it's really fun to collectively kind of uh, lock arms with our competitive set and say, let's make a difference to the way, they, way people think about training software. So a lot of times you think about training as you learn something and then it should influence your performance in a positive way. I yep. learned it. Now I'm going to be better at work. There's a middle step that we've been skipping for decades, which is practice. Uh, and practice is the idea of I learned something. Now I'm going to, in a simulated environment, try it out. Yep. Uh, so an example of practice uh, that le less than the offers what we call omni-channel practice. Uh, we, we will emulate environments that people tend to work in on sales or customer service teams. They tend to email. They tend to chat. Uh, they tend to uh, use ticketing systems like Zendesk. They tend to speak to people on the phone. So we, have an, uh, uh, we emulate the audio experience. We emulate a screen sharing experience if you're doing a Skype or a Zoom meeting. What we're doing is giving you a chance to be in those environments and try out whatever you just learned, share it with a peer, share it with your manager. You know what needs to happen, like what criteria you need to nail in those experiences. And you can get good feedback. People can go, you're really strong here and here and here. Uh, you got an opportunity for growth uh, on, on the last uh, bit of criteria that we're looking for. Now you know, but it's a safe environment. It's not in front of the customer. A lot of times we'll listen to recordings that are in front of the customer, which is a fine thing to do, and it's a good part of the mix. But only doing it in front of customers, not the greatest experience for customers, not the greatest experience for the customer service or sales rep. Let's give people a safe place to build their muscles. Uh, I like to say that don't expect to play well in the big game if you're skipping daily practice. But a lot of times we just skip daily practice. We draw up the play. It's like we're coaches in the locker room. We draw up the play and we're like, we'll do that at Monday Night Football for the first time. Nobody does that. Nobody's like, yeah, we'll try that play for the first time, game time. We try it over and over again before game time. But for some reason at work, you know, we, don't ha we have not done that yet. So practice helps you build the muscle. You learn, you practice, and then we try to measure what needles moved. How did the performance change? Right. Uh, are you closing more deals? Are you, is your, uh, net, uh, your net promoters who are going up? Pretty basic stuff, but really important stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. So, let's let's see. I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of talk for like a few minutes about sales, business to business sales, right? Please, because I know that's a big that's a big strong point of yours. That's us. Say I'm a new sales rep, okay, or I've got a new product, or I've got a new business. Doesn't doesn't really matter because it's all actually the same, providing you've nailed down like you know why you're different, why you're better than anyone else. You've got a yeah. good product. And you're ready to go, right? You got your pricing yes. and everything. So, what do I do? How do I how do I start? And where do I go? Yeah. So, if you're outreaching to people, if you're reaching out to people, they didn't they didn't raise their hand to you. That's one thing. Let's focus on a situation where you're in B two B sales and somebody's raised their hand and say, "Hey, I might be interested in what you do." Let's focus on that angle. Um, in that situation, it's super important to not assume that they're right. Uh, it's really important to assume uh, that they know a little bit about what you do, but you can help them understand better what you do. But first and foremost, you need to understand what they need. So the best salespeople in the world have a, a tremendous amount of empathy. They don't want to deliver something to you that you don't need. Uh, it's very possible that the person goes, I think I, 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 what, what you have, I need, and they're right. But first, let's ask some questions. Let's be inquisitive. Let's not take uh, things for granted. This is a time to build trust. If somebody's coming at you and saying, 
I'm interested, tell me more. First, you say, I'd love to tell you more, but what we sell means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So in your own words, what, do you, what are you looking for? Uh, and how do you see us providing value? In that conversation, you're gonna see a tremendous amount of opportunities to go, this is a good fit or it's not. Uh, and the best salespeople in the world acknowledge when it's not a good fit. They do not try to shoehorn somebody into something that they sell so they can get the deal done because people deserve better and people talk and they talk when they have a positive experience, whether they bought or not. They remember the salesperson who says, we're not the right fit. I can introduce you to somebody who is maybe that's in a completely different space or just as honest enough to go, I appreciate that you want to buy what we're doing, but I, I can't, I, it's, it's not, it's not for you. They will come back months later consistently say, I have a friend. I think they're the right fit. Or I have a brother. I think they're the right fit. You're building a network of people who support you. Uh, it is only possible to do that if you do not take a scarcity mentality to every person in front of you. If you feel like they're the last potential person who's ever going to come to you and say, I need what you have, you're going to try to sell them because they're the last one in line. If you take the abundance mentality of there's, we have a lot of value to, serve, to give to the world. This is one person out of 8 billion. Yeah. This is one person out of maybe hundreds of millions of potential people who would buy our software. Let them free if they're not the right fit and they will help you flourish. Uh, right. But you have to have the abundance mentality to be able to let people free. You know, it's the same with dating, right? You're dating somebody. If you think they're the last person to ever give you the time of day, you're really going to get a little aggressive. Uh, yeah. But they're not the last person to give you the time of day. There's so many people out in that world. A lot of analogies there. I hope that helps. I agree completely. I think the scarcity mindset is the worst. I think that people need to just get rid of that, you know. I mean, I, I've been doing a bit of research, and I and I read this book. I've got a friend of mine, and he he he's – he used to be Britain. Well, he is. He's Britain's leading hypnotist. Right? Oh, awesome. I love this. Jonathan okay. Chase. So he wrote this book, um, How to Make Friends with Yourself and Influence People. Okay. And, but he's written like five books or something. Um, he used to, he, like, he's friends with Darren Brown and like, you know, like, or lots of different magicians and hypnotists and stuff. Okay. But, but he has now moved into subconscious success. So, He's basically encouraging people to, to get their own perfect day right. That's the first step. So, okay. so it's like, what bed are you sleeping in? Yeah. What do you do when you wake up in the morning, right? You, you open the curtains and you okay. look out the window. So what, what does your view look like, right? Okay. How do you, how do you feel about that? You, you love it, right? It's your perfect day. So it's, it's basically, I love it. Okay. Got it's it. like creating Groundhog Day, okay? Okay, but it's perfect. But it's, but it's perfect, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm going to buy a private jet today because that's not going to happen every day. This is like your perfect day. What are you going to do? So I'm going to wake up. I'm going to do some, do some martial arts training. I'm going to eat some food. I'm going to have a lovely lunch. Then I'm going to talk to Max in the afternoon and we're going to chat about business and motivation and, you know, whatever else, right? Yep. But the point I'm trying to get to is, then he takes it a little step further and he says, so now what you need to do is think about who are your perfect clients, yeah? Okay. And what does their perfect day look like? Excellent. Right? Excellent. Yeah. It's it, getting in their shoes, right? Yeah. It is so easy to forget to ask the question of what's in it for them. You know, it's like the, the natural default state is what's in it for me. Uh, and when we have good ideas, 
we're rushing to, to share those good ideas with other people and often forgetting to go, why would they care? Where is their value? Have I been thoughtful about what they need? Uh, and you know, just that, that extra step of saying, what's in it for that person? How can I help that person? How can I genuinely help them? Not how can I convince them that I'm helping them, but how can I genuinely help them? That stuff just pays itself back over and over and over again because it's, it's rare. And I don't think it's so rare that you know there's nobody out there doing it, but I think it's rare enough that people pay attention when they see it and they share it when they see it. It it is contagious. Yeah. So if you do it, other people will do it. It has nothing to do with rarity. It's just contagious. And the more we do it, the more other people will. Yeah, but also it's it's about once you've worked out who you really want to spend time with and what they're like as individuals. What's really funny is is you work out that they're just like you. They're people who are just They're like people. you. And that's what's the most bizarre thing. It's almost like once you, once you come to that realization, everywhere you look, there are people who you could partner with, you could, you could do business with, who, who are your friends, they could be your advisors. And what you find is, is that you all share those personality traits. Sure. Yeah, it's humanity. Right? It's, yeah. It, yeah, but it's, it's, it's to the point of you could actually go on holiday with these people because they're not just your clients. They're actually like, they feel like your friends. Yeah. I'm tracking now. I'm tracking. Right? Now. Yeah. So it's a, so, so, so then obviously in different businesses, you've got different people who, so for me, for example, I'm going to get on with someone like you, right. But there might be someone who, who you wouldn't like to talk to. I wouldn't yeah. like to talk to them either probably because we yeah. seem quite similar. Right. Yeah. So, there will be someone else who will be in your employ who you will hire who will deal with that kind of individual and then they will f- do the perfect day and think about that that person right and then i like that yeah yeah so this is jonathan chase huh I, i'm really i'm really interested in anything that has hypnotism in it right now it's I, my, I, he's mind-blowing he look right he I, he gave me he gave me this yeah what are we looking at there? Hypnosis installed 1.0. Okay. Box set. Yeah. Okay. And have you done it? Yeah, yeah, I did it about eight months ago. And, okay. And so first of all, I, I read that book, right? Okay. Yep. Then I did the hypnosis installed and it, and, and I didn't realize that it, that it had started working. Yeah. And then I read that book again about a month ago and it was like the heavens opened and, everybody I talked to wanted to help me with something, wanted to do something or, or whatever else. And, but the thing is, it's because of what sits behind that. It's a, it's a sincerity of wanting to help those people. Right. There, there, we, need, we, need, we need that sincerity right now. Very yeah, much. Yeah. Because without that sincerity, you're trying to persuade someone to buy something that they don't want. Right. 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 So you're going to get customer refunds. You're going to get people talking badly about you, badly about your business behind your back. And it's going to damage your reputation. And sometimes it's not behind your back. Sometimes it's very public, you know, and it's like, that's, it can be very, very damaging. Yeah. It just, it it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. Uh, And I love that the priming of let's, I I feel like uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, you've been primed to start looking for people who are being helpful because that's something that really matters to you. And the more you look for them, the more you see them. 
You know, that's yeah. the, the, the neat thing about our focus. If we're focusing on who's trying to take advantage of me, you're going to find a lot of people trying to take advantage of you because you're looking for them. You're focusing on them. If you're focusing on who's trying to help me, who deeply cares about me, there's a lot of those people too. But it's yeah. all like, what, what are we looking for? Uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I started yeah. doing hyp hypnotherapy because I think that's kind of, it's fun to try different kinds of therapies. I found it to be very much like deep meditation uh, and I just loved it. And basically, you know, the gentleman uh, came and sat down with me, calmed me down, breathing. Uh, yeah. And it has helped me just be a calmer, smoother uh, breather. Um, and that breathing has really just helped me generally just be happier and healthier. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I don't know if this often gets talked about on business podcasts, but I talk I, about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. Actually. I think it all, all starts with us, right? It all starts with us working on ourselves. And yeah, these are it does. To work on ourselves. Because the thing is, if you think that you've got this subconscious brain in the back here, I mean, what, what, what Jonathan talks about in, 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 in his books, and he basically says that the subconscious mind is like a nine-year-old child, a bright nine-year-old child, right? And yeah. a nine-year-old child wants to have fun, yeah? Yep. So, so as, long as, as long as you, like whatever you're doing, if it's not fun, you need to just stop doing it. Like, if, like 90, you know, 85% of the time in my mind, you should be having fun. All right, yeah. you're going to probably have, chances are, you're you may have 15%. I mean, I have 15% yeah. probably of things that I don't really like to do, but I do them sure. because I need to do them, which yeah. is like the real world. But but Jonathan and many other people, you probably have found a way to get someone else to do those 15% of things. I would probably and To imagine. them, they might be fun. That's the cool part is sometimes those 15% of things are fun to the other person. Like tasks that to me, looking at a spreadsheet and I'm like, no way. I give it to somebody else and they are joyful. You know, that's the cool thing. If we share responsibility, we, yeah. can, we can be all, all be joyful. That's exactly right. I'm in the process of doing something with a friend of mine and we had a long conversation yesterday. I said, look, do you think you can draw this up? He's like, yeah, no problem. I'll draw it up on Friday. I'll write all the papers and we'll send out. And I'm like, what? Because yeah, he loves awesome. it. He, lo awesome. like, he just loves all those little details, you see. But yeah. me, I'm, like, I'm the big picture kind of person, you know. Yeah, you're going to lose the details. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful thing about teamwork. It's an absolutely beautiful thing about teamwork is we yeah. can all be doing, we can get everything done and everybody can enjoy doing it. And yeah. Jill, Jill Multi-Taylor, she's a neuroanatomist. She backs up uh, the idea of we've got this child in us that wants to play. Uh, and she talks about, you know, the right brain, uh, the hemisphere of the right brain, the left, left brain, the analytical side of the left brain, you know, the, the more open and expansive side of the right brain. She had a stroke and was able to experience while the left brain, uh, left side of her brain was kind of off. She was able to experience just the right side. A beautiful book called My Stroke of Insight, as a neuroanatomist, was able to experience what it feels like uh, when the right side of her brain uh, is turned off. And she, Jill happens to be um, a friend of mine because she's a, 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 one of my, my mother-in-law's best friends. Uh, wow. So I, got to, I get to hang out with her and talk to her. So she has this stroke, really expansive uh, a feeling of like everything is connected and everything is important and everything is joyful. And, you know, she basically realizes, uh, and this backs up science, you know, that the left side of the brain is good at sorting, task management, it needs time and it, and it matters. Right side of the brain needs time and it matters. You can balance them out by giving them time. So her advice was to just really devote more time uh, and give designated time to the joyful part of your brain where they can play. Give designated time to the more analytical part of your brain where it can get stuff done. If you ignore one or the other, you tend to feel stressful because one of them is going, I need more time. Uh, I need more time. And she's actually broken it down into uh, subcomponents. Um, but 
it, it backs up what you're saying about that joyful kind of nine-year-old self of like, let's play. Uh, and so she gives her, she gives herself time blocks to play and to get work done. Uh, and I find that to be very inspiring. Wow. That's, am- that's amazing. That's, that, that's just blown my mind. This conversation. Jill Bolte Taylor. She's, she's very, she's very awesome. So, so, so she's saying that if you neglect one, it's knocking on, it's knocking on your happiness sort of thing saying, don't neglect me. I need you to do something. And, and that's what I go through on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. She's saying you need to make time for it. If it knows it has oh. time tomorrow, it's not going to be so anxious and knocking and the left analytical side of the right side won't be like, when do I get to play or when do I get to get work done? Give them a lot of time. And I think that goes back to, you know, one of the reasons, have you ever felt less stress as soon as you schedule time to work on that big project? Uh, you've been putting it off and then you put it on the calendar. I'm going to have three hours tomorrow to get yeah. that done immediately. I feel better when that happens because I know I've designated time, but until I've designated that time, it's in the back of my mind, taking up 10% capacity kind of eating at me. Uh, So, you know, that is a, a a, a picture, a practical picture of what she means about that knocking and being like, when am I going to get my time? Uh, (laughs) Just giving them a bit of balance. (laughs) I think that's, that's really super interesting. That's just like, that's, that's, that's really just taken all my knowledge that I've been building up around, around myself and just said, and it's just said, right. And it's like, it's almost like everything's sort of clicked into place a little bit in my head. And Good. Said, ah, you know, we are, we are at the right place today, aren't we? Yeah, completely. I think when people listen to this, they're going to absolutely love it. I think it's going to be a great, a great episode. I'm so glad. I appreciate that. We got the time to talk. I've really enjoyed it. I've really yeah, enjoyed it. Me too. So over, over to having difficult conversations, right? Because yep. I know that's a big, it's a big thing, like, you know, internal yeah. communications and, 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 and this sort of stuff, right? You bet. I mean, you have a team over there of how many people now? We have 105 today. <sighs> yeah, we, it's a big team now. Wow, wow. To me, that's so, a really big team, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So, so how do you... How do you manage these difficult conversations that you're having with people? Like, you know, well, first question. of all, what, what, what is a difficult conversation that you would sort of generally have in a business of that size? Yeah. So uh, difficult conversations became a value at Lessonly roughly four years ago. We, we really formalized our values about a couple years in, which was really intentional. Just a real quick aside. You know, I think a lot of companies start and they lock in their values on day one. Uh, what we did was we waited as we build a team up a little bit to say, and then reflected and said, you know, at around 15 people, what do we do that we love doing? What do we do that's working? Uh, what is happening when things aren't working? And then we come back and we say, well, let's build our values off of that information. You know, it's practical. It's, it's, it's historic data. And one of them was we have difficult conversations. Um, uh, one of those values, and, and, and it remains a value today because it's never going away. Uh, what, what happens when you, the reason you'd ever have a difficult conversation is there's tension or conflict in an interpersonal relationship. Uh, one person feels they've been slighted. One person feels they've been overlooked. Uh, maybe both parties feel that way. Any number of reasons where somebody could feel conflict or tension. Largely, conflict and tension at work doesn't come from, uh, from actual personal discord. It comes from uh, systemic, uh, systemic con- uh, conflict. Systemic conflict would be, I'm in finance, you're in marketing, your job in marketing is to spend money. My job in finance is to not spend money and to save money. There's conflict there that has nothing to do with you and me liking one another. But because we don't know one another that well, we might make it personal because we've never probably heard about systemic conflict. You know, we've never been taught that conflict can come from any other spot than another person being a jerk. 
Right. Uh, so, so we tend to make things personal that aren't personal. Uh, either way, we need to have a way to get through them. You know, but a big message to the team is do not assume, uh, do not assume that somebody had bad intentions. If we come at it from the benefit of the doubt of this is a circumstantial thing, more likely than a character thing, you know, because we tend to judge other people by their character and our own behavior by our circumstances, which is super convenient for us. Because if we have a circumstance of, well, you know, I, I, was, I was mean to that person today because I got in a fight with my wife last night and I'm just having a bad day. That's my cop out. That's my excuse, right? Um, but if they're mean to me, well, then they're just a jerk with a rotten soul. You know, that kind of stuff. It, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty helpful for us when we get to make those excuses, but it doesn't create any harmony in the world. We need to give all the people the benefit of the doubt like we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We judge others by uh, their character. We need to judge them by their circumstances. Moral of the story is when we're having struggles with people, we just generally need to talk about it. And it took many years for us to figure out what the right model for talking about it was. We ended up uh, uh, landing on a, a, a model called compassionate communication or nonviolent communication. C compassionate communication or nonviolent communication is just like, how do you speak in ways that don't cause hurt and harm? How do you communicate what you're seeing, how it makes you feel, what you need, and what you'd request uh, as an alternative uh, without inciting an argument? Because the reality of argument is if you look at how the, the words that we use when we just describe our arguments, they're the same phrases we use when we go to war. We say, oh, he shot my, my point down, or he, uh, he stood his ground, or he attacked my weakest point. All of those are war terms. This is not a, a thing that I came up with. These gentlemen who study metaphors, Lakoff and Johnson, they uh, were like, listen, metaphors matter a lot. We need to understand what our metaphors are. Our, our metaphor for argument is war. And that's generally the way we resolve a lot of our conflict is war. We argue. We should not expect to find peace when we're using war uh, as the basis for how we're uh, working through things. Because peace doesn't come from war. Uh, so what we need to do is figure out a way to communicate in a way that is uh, not going to get people to escalate, but gets people to de-escalate and understand one another better uh, and reach mutual uh, empathy and compassion. We can do that by using compassion and communication. I, I just finished a book. It's coming out in February. Uh, it has a, an entire a chapter on having difficult conversations and how to do it. Um, and I took it uh, with permission from a gentleman named Marshall Rosenberg. I believe Marshall Rosenberg was a living angel. Uh, I don't even know if there's an afterlife, but this guy had to have been sent from somewhere very special. Uh, in the 60s, he came up with compassionate communication. He ne negotiated uh, tensions between, um, between gangs. Uh, he uh, did UN uh, World Peace Summits. This guy was basically like, we can understand one another better if we observe more and judge less, if we can communicate our feelings instead of our thoughts. The difference between a feeling and a thought is I can say, um, I feel like you're letting everybody down. That's a thought. Uh, a feeling is I'm sad and overwhelmed. Those feelings can come from the exact, the thought and feeling can come from the exact same place, which is the observation of I haven't seen you in three days. If I haven't seen you in three days, I might feel like you're letting everybody down, but it's a lot clearer if I say I haven't seen you in three days and I'm sad and overwhelmed, which gets to the person to the point of I need more help. My needs, you know, I need to be supported. And then my request is if you're going to be, you know, go missing for three days, please tell me where you are. Uh, these are just ways up for us to reach one another without escalating violence, without making things more hurtful or harmful. Uh, they're ways for us to understand. You know what it's like to feel sad. I know what it's like to feel sad. You know what it's like to feel agitated. So do I. When we use words like I feel agitated or I feel, um, or I feel uneasy, people can relate to us. We build a mutual connection right away. Most people don't want to make people feel uneasy. Most people don't want to make people feel sad. And people don't make people feel anything is an important part of nonviolent communication and compassionate communication. 
we choose to feel how we feel. You know, your behaviors, I let you make me feel a certain way. You don't make me feel any way. I allow it. I choose to allow whatever you've done to impact me negatively. So I should take responsibility for that. So when, if you do something that frustrates me, I can say, I am angry because you didn't call me last night, but I'm angry. I, I am angry. Uh, because <laughs> I've got a little middle finger statue being shown. To I, me couldn't, right I couldn't help it. My buddy, I Eric, he, he, I just, sometimes I just do it. it. I just can't help it. My friend, I Eric looked down and me. I was like, what is that? <laughs> he made me an, uh, 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 a printed 3d middle finger, right? And how do you, how do you, when you hear this and you think about giving somebody a middle finger or communicating with them, the goal is, you know, middle finger escalates. Uh, and <laughs> and, and sure my, big thing is, my big thing is de-escalate. Uh, so anyhow, uh, I, I love difficult conversations because we don't learn how to have them. We just don't learn how to have them. Uh, I don't know about your primary school. Uh, we didn't learn anything about conflict in primary school. We didn't learn anything about conflict, you know, middle school, high school. It's what we deal with every day. And we got basically two hours of it in kind of like, you know, uh, uh, the gymnasium got filled and two people came in to talk about conflict for maybe an hour at a time, twice uh-huh. throughout my education. That's not enough time. It's no. not enough time. You know, we, we spend plenty of time on calculus and I don't see calculus every day. I'd like to spend half as much time on calculus and a heck of a lot more time on helping people understand how to communicate and be compassionate and get, and get through conflict. Maybe not resolve it, but manage it. I agree. I'm just nodding away here. That's, that's, that's really valuable information, Max. So it, what is your book all about then? Yeah, it's called Do Better Work. And the idea is uh, how do we help anybody on a team who wants to do better work, who wants to make more progress at work, which is really what doing better work is all about. How do we push the team forward? It's, a, it's, it's written for anybody on any team in any rank or role who wants to uh, engage in behaviors that make more progress. Really, the idea is Progress is driven largely out of camaraderie and clarity. So camaraderie is this idea of we have a mutual trust and respect for one another. The behaviors in the book, the eight behaviors, help build camaraderie. And then clarity. Clarity is understanding what matters, why it matters, who's responsible for going after it, what role do I play in it, what role do you play in it. If we know what matters and we trust and respect one another, we're going to crush stuff. We're going to do great work together. We're going to make a lot of progress. Without clarity, we might run in circles together and kind of – I like one another, but not know what to do with, with clarity and without camaraderie, we're not going to work together. We're all going to be kind of mercenaries. So this book is just about, it doesn't matter who you are. You don't need your whole team to care. If you redo better work, you can do things. You specifically take action because all you can ever control is what you do. You can never control what your teammate does. Taking action to say, I'm going to do these small behaviors, like asking clarifying questions, like having difficult conversations, uh, like sharing before I'm ready. And because I do them, the whole team, can it can make more progress. And the more I do them, the more likely it is somebody's going to look at me and go, yeah, I want to do that too. I see that working for Max. You know, like oh. I see uh, whoever the person is, we can inspire other people to do better work simply by doing it ourselves. But if right. we wait around until everybody's ready, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. So asking a clarifying question, is yes. that a kind of, is that saying to them, how do you feel about this and getting all sort of emotional and bringing that into it? It could be. It could be as simple as somebody going, can we get uh, a SME on our API? And you're like, can you tell me what you mean by SME and API? I mean, a clarifying question is when right. somebody uses jargon, don't, don't act like you know what they mean when you don't. Uh, yeah. when, somebody, when somebody says we need to make changes here and you're not sure what they mean by that, you say, oh, interesting. Can you elaborate on that? 
It is making sure people keep talking until they give you what they need. Because oftentimes, uh, there's a thing called the curse of knowledge, where if you know something or I know something, we tend to think other people know it too. So we communicate in fractions instead of holes, uh, because we think you have the information that, that, that you need to fill in the, the gaps, but often you don't. Uh, we're prone to under-communicating information. If we ask clarifying questions, those clarifying questions can fill in the rest of the gaps, the blocks uh, of, of clarity. But if we don't ask them and we just assume that we know what the gaps are and we can fill them in ourselves, we're running the risk of creating a division. We're running the risk of, uh, of assuming our ways toward different outcomes. So it's just pausing, being less assumptive. Uh, you know, if you watch a TV show or a movie, you see people communicate with like amazing intuition. One person says something, the other person immediately knows what they mean and responds with like the perfect answer. Uh, these are really smart people we watch all the time on TVs and, and movies. We're smart too, but it ain't a movie that we're living here. It's not a TV show that we're living here. Let's be clear. Let's pause and go, I'm not quite sure I understand. Can you give me one more example? That's what clarifying questions are. Right. That's really valuable information. I'm just so grateful that you, you came at this with a really positive attitude. You were excited. I made me excited. It's been really fun to get to know you. And I will be, I love to send you a copy of the book when it's out. So thank you. I'd really appreciate that. That'd be fantastic. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thank you.